You know, it's probably the most common question I'm ever asked in real estate. What do you think of XYZ market? What do you think of the Melbourne market? What do you think of the Sydney market? What do you think of the Brisbane market? What do you think of the Perth market? It is a big conversation piece. It's actually almost like the wrong question to ask. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show is another zippy zappy affair. We're going to dig into my Forex growth plan, how to get growth out of real estate. And we're going to tackle the conversation of location growth, a big part of my Forex growth plan, probably one of the most important elements of any real estate investor's decision-making is around where to actually buy real estate. I think a large part of the conversation around real estate is often when to buy real estate, but what about where? Where do we actually knuckle down and build a buy and hold portfolio and hold real estate for the long term? Location growth is today's conversation, and I'm pumped to talk about it because I'm going to introduce you to the science of consumer habits and locational growth. I am pumped to deliver today's show. I've got my uh, new clothing range t-shirt on, uh, powered by purpose, hashtag people, place and planet. Um, I'm hoping to, I don't know, one day sell these t-shirts. They're in prototype. So if you're watching on YouTube, you can check out my new clothing range. See what you think. See if you're into the look and feel of fixing uh, people up, fixing up the planet and of course making beautiful places which is really what I'm all about. If you don't understand my purpose in life, well I'm wearing it. I want to make the best places for people to invest in on planet earth. I want to fix the planet by doing some cool carbon stuff and uh, certainly people I absolutely love being part of a great coaching network which helps people tackle some critical questions in their life really fundamentally around wealth. Hey, enough about my t-shirt range. Where I left the conversation last week was around my uh, Gopnik dog. Yes, Rafi the Gopnik dog has arrived and we are thrilled to have him. We've got him on a two-week Gopnik dog trial to see whether he's suitable for our little world. Um, And he's indeed a Gopnik. Yes, he's been nicking things from the house He's a little thief, like a little Gopnik thief. He uh, runs off with shoes and all sorts of things and tries to hide them and um, it's basically a little stealer. Now, why I got a Gopnik dog is a story in itself. I will share it with you. I live in a little enclave, which is a beautiful little pocket in Sydney and uh, in the area I live, it's a bit of an ostentatious area, people you know, cruise around with Lambos and Porsches and all sorts of things in this neighborhood. So uh, having a Gopnik dog is definitely going to ruffle the feathers and that is really what my intent is. Uh, About four years ago, I was cruising with my then dog, Hannah the dog. Now, Hannah the dog was a very, very quiet, well-natured dog. Hannah the dog was a little fox terrier. 
And really, she was not an alpha dog. She was just a really, really pleasant, well-behaved dog. Now, an incident occurred about four or five years ago when I was walking down to the beach near my house. And basically, this little kid flew past me on like an electric skateboard and was going so quick and literally zipped past me and Hannah the dog. Now, Hannah the dog was not a dog I needed to walk on a lead. Typically, we just cruised around um, basically man and dog, right? Like, you know, back in, you know, caveman times, the man cruised with his dog. He didn't need a lead. He didn't need counsel telling him his dog was you know, a bastard or whatever. Anyway, this little kid zoomed past my dog, nearly ran her over, and Hannah the dog, who really is a very placid dog, sort of chased this kid a bit, just about 20 metres. Anyway, this little, um, I'm going to call him Lord Fauntleroy with his ostentatious family with their Lamborghinis, um, flew off the skateboard and, like, basically flew in the air and ended up in a hedge, like um, basically head first. And I started chuckling. I was like like laughing, right? And this mum came around the corner chasing little Lord Fauntleroy, screaming, oh, your dog, your dog. Um, and because I was chuckling, which maybe I shouldn't have done, I don't know, but uh, it was funny. And as a person that has experienced a lot of flying through the air head first into things like I was cool with it like I mountain bike I um, have been on motorbikes I've come off head first into bridges you name it I've had my fair stare of stack so if anyone can laugh it's a fellow stack stacker uh, so I laughed at this kid right anyway long where's this story going let's let's bring it back together anyway this mum she was like really upset at me and she was like giving me a like telling me off like oh, I was a kid anyway she was like your dog nah, 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 nah. um so anyway next few weeks like as I was walking Hannah the dog around basically a whole team of women like mums started to like give me dirty looks and like angry faces and I was the guy that made this kid stack into the bush. I'm that guy in the neighbourhood. So basically in my neighbourhood, people don't particularly uh, like me, especially kind of like middle-aged women. And so what was happening is they were walking their dog and their bad energy to me because of this freaking kid that fell in a bush started to like, I don't know, must come through their veins into their dogs. So basically... Uh, there was a few dogs that ended up attacking my my dog, Hannah the dog. There was Cashew, uh, Smudgy, and Ted. Now, Ted is a, like, a, a dash hound. Uh, Smudgy is, like, this little weird, like, permy-looking dog. I think he's like a poodle. And uh, Cashew is kind of like this sort of Labrador. Anyway, whenever I'd walk past these ladies like their dogs would literally try and kill my dog. And I know it wasn't their dogs trying to kill my dog. It was kind of like this, I don't know, almost like gorilla way of trying to bash me. So fast forward, obviously Hannah's passed away. 
I've got a Gopnik dog. There's a new sheriff in town. So if you are listening, Cashew, uh, Smudgy or Ted, we are coming for you. Yes, the Gopniks are coming. We are loud and proud and we are going to take down this neighbourhood and take back the streets for good people that uh, can, you know, have a bit of a laugh in this world. Anyway, that's that's sort of part of the reason I've got the Gopnik dog. He's on the two-week trial. We're going to see if we can uh, restore, I guess, the neighbourhood to, to what it uh, fundamentally should be. Anyway, that's enough catching up, isn't it, about Gopnik dogs? I don't know. Maybe I spent way too much time talking about that. It's a real estate show. Why are we talking about Gopnik dogs? Today, we're going to talk about location strategies when it comes to buying real estate. And of course, a big conversation today is the idea that a lot of what is being communicated is a level of broad you know, opportunity for capital growth. And quite often when the market's declining, there's also a conversation often about broad market growth decreasing. So how do we sort of understand what is a good location, what is not a good location, what are some of the conversations at a macro level? So then you can drill down into some more micro elements about whether it's a good street or good uh, product that you're potentially looking at. Today, I want to go a little bit helicopter of locations themselves. Now, I don't think a week goes by as to someone asking me the question, you know, it's probably the most common question I'm ever asked in real estate. What do you think of XYZ market. What do you think of the Melbourne market? What do you think of the Sydney market? What do you think of the Brisbane market? What do you think of the Perth market? It is a big conversation piece. It's actually almost like the wrong question to ask because to begin this conversation, really there are markets within markets. And today I want to teach you and get you to a point where you kind of understand the difference between what happens in the real estate market at a more sort of macro market point of view. Now, obviously, inside the real estate market, you could, for example, say there's the new home market, there's the established home market, there's new growth corridor marketplaces of basically new land opening up. Uh, There's the unit market. Which unit market? Uh, Is it an established unit market? Is it a historic unit market? Is there a genre to the unit market? Which town plan inside the unit market? Um, There is so many little maneuvers and moving parts to the real estate marketplace. It's very, very, very difficult to go, well, there's just one big market. Let's all mash it together. Now, when RP Data, CoreLogic, puts out a market report or ANZ, generally they're looking at mashing everything together and basically they come out with sort of broad statements around uh, the marketplace and its potential for growth. And a lot of that is, is fundamentally just how they basically index the market. So it is fundamentally a real estate index, if you like. So they just take every single property in Australia and index its growth rate. And basically that's that's kind of like how they mash the, the movement of the market. So there might be $6 billion worth of real estate, then you know a growth rate of 20%. 
then there will be you know, $7.2 billion worth of real estate. However, for us as property investors, we know real estate is a lot different to that. And again, like I always get these questions, you know, should I buy in the Melbourne market? Well, which part of the Melbourne market? The CBD, for example, is a completely different marketplace than say the inner east of Melbourne. The CBD is a foreign investment market. Um, you know, then you've got inner ring suburbs, you've got middle ring suburbs. In Melbourne, there are probably distinctly nine different marketplaces. You've got the CBD, you've got uh, the inner ring, then you've got the inner middle ring, then you've got the middle ring, then you've got things like Bayside real estate, then you've got the outer north, outer east, outer west, which all do different things inside the real estate market. So again, this stuff can be a little bit complicated and I think this is one of the biggest challenges to property investors to understand, well, is the Outer East a good place to buy real estate? Uh, is the Bayside area a good place to buy real estate? In compared or in context to what, how do I actually understand these particular dynamics? And of course, complicating it even further, you know, you can say, well, buying an apartment in the inner ring makes a lot of sense because that's where apartments are. Buying an apartment out uh, on the edge of the city makes kind of no sense because that's typically where people go to the edge of the city for space. So they want more land content with what they buy. So again, there is this kind of like jigsaw puzzle to put together. We've got to match the pieces together. And when we match the pieces together, we at a broad level can start to define and refine and put down our funnel more opportunities to explore. Now, remember, at a broad level, there's the vacant land market, the established housing market, and the apartment market. And they all are uh, fundamentally just, I guess, three dynamics which occur in real estate. Uh, however, when it comes to location, 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 I like to invest in five kind of macro locations. And inside my Forex growth plan, I teach the macro location. So you've got a almost like a starting point. So what is the Forex growth plan? Well, if you've never heard my podcast before, uh, you're probably not familiar with the Forex Growth Plan, so I'm going to remind you, for those people who are long-term listeners, you're probably sick of hearing about the Forex Growth Plan, but it is a really, really good growth plan. Now, personally, I always teach that property investors need to end up with a few assets. Income-producing assets, obviously, produce income. Income is how we replace our job and then sail off into the sunset to do something. Perhaps our passion project, like my passion project at the moment, uh, is clothing. I want to uh, get into making the world actually uh, clothed better when it comes to what they stand for. In fact, my theory is when I meet someone, I want to give them my clothing. I want to say, this is what I stand for. This is my purpose. Please wear my purpose on your body. It's like uh, clothing art. Anyway, the five locations I love speaking about in real estate 
are in this kind of Forex growth plan. And when it comes to the Forex growth plan, I think you've got to go one layer up and go, well, I want to own three, four, five properties. I want diversity. I teach the five properties in five cities strategy that you can own, uh, you know, different types of real estate in different marketplaces. And typically when one marketplace is slowing down, potentially you've got an asset diversified so that it continues to rise. So as we know right now, um, if you've got five properties in five cities right now, most of them are probably going up in value because most places are actually going up in value at the moment. So the entire Australian marketplace is going up, which is a little bit unusual. Typically, Sydney might go up and then Melbourne and then Melbourne will slow down and then, uh, you know, Perth might go up and Adelaide, then Brisbane. So having a little bit of diversity is not a bad strategy. So then I drill things down from diversity to the Forex growth plan, which is just simple. You've got to have a strategy for buying real estate. And I'll come back and I'll teach you some strategies around buying real estate. Then you've got to have a strategy for locating a property and buying in certain locations and understanding what those locations offer in the context of economics. So today I want to concentrate on that part. Of course, then there is market growth, which is led by quite often market forces in macro and microeconomics. Then there is behavioral growth. And that's where you drill into real estate at a niche level, try and understand if it's a nice property, it's got really good design features, it's uh, you know facing the right direction, it's, it's got some good elements to it, right? So we're going to start today's conversation, um, which we've already started, around this idea of location growth and inside the Forex growth plan, what that actually means. So you can sort of walk away from today's show knowing, one, I'm taking back the neighborhood with my Gobnik dog, and two, you know how to sort of assess real estate and go, you know, locationally, I get why this location makes sense to the overall scheme of investing. Now, I think to understand the locations I look at inside of real estate, I don't generally classify locations around, I guess, established markets, new markets, growth corridors, unit markets. I go a little bit deeper than that. I know probably from a reporting point of view, core logic and things like that, um, for example, we'll look at, you know, the inner north, the inner, inner west, inner ring, the middle suburban ring, the outer land ring. They'll look at vacant land, established housing, and the apartment market. But for me, I like to drill down a little bit further than that when it comes to locations. And I like to use what is often referred to as more behavioral economic logic to understand location activity in the marketplace. So we're going to go through five of them. These are the five that I like to look at inside the real estate marketplace. And when we analyze them, they are a great form of diversity in themselves. So if you simply want to buy two or three properties in the same marketplace, in other words, the same city, if you want to buy three or four properties in Sydney, 
How do you diversify your asset allocation? Well, you can do that through what I'm about to teach you because it will give you a different lens at understanding real estate. So it's pretty cool. Um, and I want to teach you some new terms so that, again, you can start to comprehend how real estate kind of works. So the first market I want to teach you is what is known as a competition marketplace. Competition marketplace. Oh, but hang on a minute. What about the land market? What about the apartment market? I won't be talking about that because I think that's a load of bullshit. There's, you know, 100,000 apartments. We want to find a thousand of them that are good. And in that thousand of them, we want to find 30 that really stand out. And in that 30, one that's cracking, right? That's why I think really understanding the Forex growth plan will really help you get where you need to go. So the first marketplace I always teach people is known as a competition marketplace. Competition marketplaces, by the way, are really where most people and most property investors buy in. And there is good and bad bids to competition marketplaces, and I'll explain them to you. Now, the first thing to understand with competition marketplaces, they are driven by price, not lifestyle. Price, not lifestyle. They are actually price-sensitive marketplaces. And the best way to understand competition marketplaces is if you've ever been to a market, a bazaar, uh, Paddy's Markets, quite often the same product is available by different merchants. And as such, basically the only point of difference is price. Competition markets are price-sensitive markets. In a good year, the price can go up. In a tough year, the price will adjust. But when it comes to localized dynamics, there is really nothing that stands out in those marketplaces, albeit price. So, of course people are shopping on price. And this is a dynamic that property investors need to consider. Because when I explain the four other markets to you, you'll start to potentially understand that price doesn't always equal value. And that is the big conversation around real estate. Where is the value? So, Price-sensitive markets are competition markets. Really, when you think about uh, in our cities, there might be 300 suburbs that make up a city. Probably around 200 plus suburbs are what we would call a competition marketplace. There really is nothing good about those suburbs from a geographical point of view, from a lifestyle point of view. Uh, They are just driven by price. And quite often when we look at even, for example, the new land corridors that open up in real estate, really they are driven 
by price, not lifestyle. People simply look at their budget and go, let's get in the car and let's stop when we can compete a competition marketplace. Now, there are great ways to help people buying competition marketplaces. The reality of being a property investor is quite often when you are building a portfolio, there will be a point where you have to enter the competition marketplace. I try and coach people to diversify into the competition marketplace after they potentially have explored the other marketplaces, which I'll talk you through, um, you know, when we get to them. But the competition market is obviously that there's lots of real estate. It's hard to distinguish really the difference between it. Um, typically, there is no competitive advantage to the neighborhood. Um, and as such, you know, it is driven around price, the price competition. So I like to make money out of the price competition by finding the ripple. And the ripple effect is something which, of course, pushes real estate up, the price ripple. And the price ripple is just simply that certain suburb geographically will become uh, priced out. It'll price a lot of people out of it. But those good people then look at the very next suburb and see value. So you might have one suburb trading at, you know, a million dollars. You go two to three more kilometers to the next neighborhood and you're down to $700,000. So three kilometers, a $300,000 difference, that's $100,000 per kilometer. Will the ripple drift into that neighborhood and you know depending on the neighborhood but uh, you know potentially will and sometimes there's just a big difference in the overall appeal of the neighborhood but that's potentially what you're betting on and the ripple is something I love working on I love going to competition marketplaces and going well a lot of society is buying real estate because it's affordable. Where do we find that affordability suburb and deal? And where is the price ripple coming from? And as such, that is really the major way to buy in competition markets. Um, again, competition marketplaces are really areas which, you know, fundamentally um, – you know, is it, there's there's just literally thousands of vendors and thousands of buyers, and on a good day it can be highly profitable. On a tough day, you know, it slows right up. And again, I think most property investors kind of play in the competition marketplace, and they probably don't realize potentially there are other marketplaces to look at first when it comes to the real estate location growth strategy. Remember, competition marketplaces, probably if you're going to build five properties in five cities, you're going to enter the competition marketplace. And that is just a practicality of price. Um, you know, buying the most beautiful real estate in economics is hard. Real estate is getting more and more expensive. The better suburbs are fast becoming priced out. Um, people are owning real estate in those better suburbs for longer and longer, creating less opportunities for people to get into those better suburbs. So uh, 
the idea of buying in a competitive marketplace is something that real estate investors just need to comprehend. The polar opposite to a competitive marketplace as a location is really what I uh, refer to as a monopoly-based real estate market, a monopoly-based real estate marketplace. Now, a monopoly-based real estate marketplace is exactly that. It is designed about being something quite rare, something quite unique. It is a dynamic and a principle in real estate that has stood the test of time from a location sport point of view. So monopoly markets fundamentally generally have what we would call a tightly held suburb, a suburb which really cannot, uh, you know, sprawl any further, can't grow any further uh, when it comes to really huge amounts of new stock. Quite often those suburbs are monopoly based because they're already got heritage overlays protecting the neighborhood. As such, you end up getting this kind of really uh, monopolized effect of just people with money paying to take out the better asset over and over and over again. And again, obviously, when we talk about there's, you know, 300 suburbs in Sydney, well, you know, 200 of them are just competition marketplaces where the price on the day is what what's going on. Then there's 100 suburbs, which are the polar opposite. They go up in value, but it's not driven by the competition of affordability. It is driven by competition of almost like getting something unique monopolized marketplaces now i grew up in australia's one of australia's wealthiest suburbs it's probably a top five top 10 suburb in australia it's a suburb called hunters hill i grew up um, at the woolwich end of hunters hill in a toxic street which i've talked about in my money shame episode if you haven't heard my uh, Chernobyl boy story. Go back and listen to that particular podcast, uh, Money Shame. But I grew up in a monopolized marketplace. It was a monopoly. So Hunters Hill, if you're not familiar with it, particularly the Woolagen, is a peninsula. So there is nowhere for it to go. It's surrounded by water. It's like um, having a moat around it. And as such, the real estate inside that castle so to speak of a suburb is a monopoly it is uh, really rare earth when it comes to real estate now of course for property investors buying in Hunters Hill is pretty hard thing to do right like it's a gazillion dollars to buy real estate there except if you want uh, the toxic land I grew up on but we still can find these monopoly marketplaces when it comes to a suburb heritage. Uh, we can find tightly held pockets inside suburbs which really stand out from the crowd. And this is where you see like stock offered for the first time in 70 years in a tightly held area or suburb, which is, which is a really, you know, again, it just makes that location unique and different and of course for property investors that can be really cool that can be really cool and uh you know again it probably doesn't help someone who's got three hundred thousand dollars to spend but 
you know, if you're spending six or seven hundred thousand dollars, you absolutely can find these marketplaces. Not in Sydney, but you can find them in Melbourne and Newcastle and Canberra and Brisbane. You just, you just, you know, Sydney's Sydney's already bolted, right? Um, that's that's the sad truth. So. Again, like when you're hearing in the news, the apartment markets, you know, surging in value or the house markets, you know, going backwards or, you know, there's an oversupply of apartments and things like this. Well, well, not in monopoly markets. What are you talking about? Monopoly markets are exactly that. They are a very monopolized, nowhere to go. The monopoly's done. There is, there is really... Uh, no room for those marketplaces to to do anything. The next market is an emerging market, emerging marketplace. And I look, I love investing in all five of these and my portfolio spread across all five of these. And why I think it's a really diverse way to understand real estate. If you're, you know, need to buy two or three properties in the one suburb and you can't city rather, and you can't diversify into five different cities, uh, or even if you can diversify into five different cities, you might want m- one monopoly deal, but your second deal may not be a monopoly deal because you just simply can't afford it. I mean, I know myself and some investors just recently bought um, in Collingwood, which again, like, is got heritage protection over it. It's kind of monopolized. It's got a green... Um, you know, overlay when it comes to what the council's doing. It, it's it's where we bought, particularly in the suburb, very monopolistic. There was nowhere for really uh, the market to to go in a different direction. There is there is no availability of of really anything to correct that market in a different direction. And I think this is one of the big conversations with real estate. If you can understand the market landscape and the lens into the future, you can sort of start to go, well, wow, that's a, that's a very tightly held um, area. So the next area is an emerging marketplace. And, you know, the emergence of real estate, which uh, is driven by gentrification, again, for me, is a very locational strategy. It's very different to a competition market where everyone's just peddling price. Emerging markets is something that is transforming and it is it emerging markets driven by gentrification are actually driven by the change of social status. So basically gentrification, and I've done a long podcast on the art form, which is gentrification, is just the idea that an improved social status looks fondly on a location. Now, I teach the gentrification clock. Yes, like a property clock, that which you're probably familiar with where, you know, there's a boom at, you know, 12 o'clock and a bust at 6 o'clock on a traditional analog clock. The gentrification clock is, is also a process that things go through. Gentrification starts at a grassroots level. It goes through a planning stage. It goes through a almost like an intensive renovation stage, it then goes through a stage where 
the population or social status of a neighborhood begins to morph and change, local people start to go, you know what? I can't even recognize this place. And we then go into this idea of like a fully transformed area, which is socially amazing. And again, this is where we we kind of see areas which could easily be price sensitive or competition marketplaces morph to become fully transformed high social status neighborhoods. So when it comes to where I look for in real estate, again, emerging or emerged marketplaces is a big part of that conversation. The gentrification story is a big, big driver of change. And again, the gentry is just a word of a person of higher status. That's what gentry means. That's why the word gentrification is used for real estate. Often we think real estate being gentrified is just, you know, us, you know, painting the house, but actually it is both painting the house, but also someone from a higher wealth status, the gentry coming to town to buy that real estate and and certainly see it as more valuable. So when it comes to gentrification, I teach some quadrants inside the 4X growth plan inside the location section that you've got really properties going through different stages of gentrification. So for example, a property which is an ugly duckling suburb, it's really rough, but it could become an absolute diamond is really early stage gentrification. So quite often the capital growth from social status on a ugly duckling suburb will come much later in its life transformation through gentrification. Uh, However, if you, for example, got a suburb which is driven by its brand, its place, it's gentrified, it is really fully transformed. The social status, the elite have already found it and, of course, they then start to pay good money to own real estate there and continue to do so. So a place economic neighborhood, for example, with a brand would be Bondi. Bondi Beach is a famous brand. Byron Bay is a famous brand. Fitzroy is a famous brand. Tenerife, a famous brand when it comes to real estate. Surrey Hills, famous brand. Um, because they're famous brands when it comes to real estate, they fully transform and fully gentrified. The gentry now fights other gentry to own real estate in those neighborhoods. So gentrification is a great thing. And the later in the cycle of gentrification, in the stages of it, the more you pay for real estate. But it does not mean that you're paying too much for real estate. It simply means the gentry have discovered it and as such really is no limit to how much that real estate could be worth. When you're buying the ugly duckling part of the gentrification cycle, the gentry hasn't discovered it. 
So it means it is an emerging place and you've just got to put up with that that is a longer game than, for example, a brand which is discovered. So one's an up-and-coming brand which has no brand value as a suburb at this point. One is a fully brand-orientated suburb. So for me, I've recently invested in emerging market being Footscray. And it is not a, you know, brand as such like St Kilda at this point. But it has the potential to get there 10, 15 years from now. So with my asset in that marketplace, even though it's done really well recently, it is also a bit more of a long-term play. Um, As such, the brand itself, the brand Footscray Melbourne, has a little bit more work to go through to be considered socially elite. And it could take a while, right? So understanding emerging markets to me is a really cool way to uh, discipline yourself when it comes to real estate. Is it a brand suburb? That's cool as well. Can I afford the brand suburb? No, I can't. Or yes, I can. Do I go to the ugly duckling that could become the brand suburb? Uh, great move when it comes to locational investing. Now, remember, we've gone through a few here, competition markets, uh, places or suburbs driven by price, not lifestyle. They are the bazaar and any day at auction, things could be going left, right and center, right? They're the marketplaces that, again, if we are going to buy there, we circle back based on our budget But if we can get into a monopoly-based marketplace, we should give that a whirl. If we can get into emerging marketplaces, they carry, again, a different location strategy than um, fundamentally just rolling the dice with the rest of the competition. By the way, right now, competition marketplaces are faring very well, very well. Don't get me wrong. Uh, You know, I'm so happy that basically most people that own assets just about anywhere are doing okay out of the real estate marketplace. But we, uh, again, are playing a long-term game here. And if we can understand that inside uh, the real estate location matrix, we can drill into some of the real behavioral science of um, real estate. And again, this is where you're probably, you know, clickbait and your news.com and stuff like that. Just don't dig deep enough when they come to the reporting when it comes to, you know, the apartment market or the housing market. Is it an established housing market? Is it a new housing market? Is it a new apartment market? Is it an established market market? Is the apartment market in a gentrifying suburb? Is the apartment market in a brand suburb? Is the uh, you know, housing market in a monopoly is the townhouse in a monopoly dynamic. Again, very, 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 very interesting way to look at real estate, which most people just don't understand the behavioral science of this stuff, right? So the next marketplace I'm going to teach you is one I can never say yes I can't say a few words. I can say Gopnik, Gospada, but I can't say Punkum, and I can't say Oligolopy, 
which is the next market. And oligolopy is probably not even how you say it, but it is the market inside the real estate economy. Now, an oligolopy is just simply the idea that a small amount of vendors control the marketplace. Uh, And when you think of oligolopy businesses in Australia, you would probably think, if you wanted to think about groceries, for example, you would say that Coles and Woolworths are an oligopoly. You can't buy really produce in many other places at a localized level. If you want to, you know, do, for example, the shoe market when it comes to sneakers, you could say like there's Adidas or Didas, however you say it, Nike, ASIC, you know, they're an oligopoly. There's not a thousand vendors at the bazaar. And that is a, a, the difference, again, between the competition marketplaces and the oligopoly marketplaces. There is less vendors. So the vendor is actually in control of the outcome of really the property. Now, from a property investor's point of view, sometimes the fact that the vendor is asking a premium on the property, the vendor is in control in a marketplace where there are less vendors all around because there's less stock that comes to marketplace. Again, sometimes property investors miss the subtlety here and rush off to a marketplace where there is just constant competition, right? And again, paying that little bit extra can actually push you into a marketplace which is controlled by less people selling real estate. Now, have I confused you? Well, I'm going to clarify this conversation. What is an oligopoly marketplace? Well, have you ever heard of NIMBYs? Not in my backyard marketplace a not in my backyard. So basically NIMBYs are fundamentally people who protect their suburb. They don't allow a lot of density to the area. And as such, they become almost like an oligarch and control the oligolopy, which I can never say. In other words, because there are there's less real estate allowed in the, just have some water, because there's less real estate allowed in the neighborhood all round, there are less vendors. And of course, when you think about what that actually does to real estate, generally makes that real estate more valuable. Now, the argument is sometimes in NIMBY markets, people, you know, have to pay a, a little bit extra to become a NIMBY. But then you become a NIMBY. And when you become a NIMBY, uh, you fundamentally are controlling something which is more valuable because there's less of it. Now, I think NIMBYs do a great job at sort of protecting, you know, the trees and koalas and all sorts of things. Rich people also like to be rich. And rich people make sure they're going to be oligarchs by making sure really no supply comes to their neighborhood. So if you can buy something in an 
oligolopy, which I can never say, you're going to do really, really well, particularly over the longer term. Now, again, the real estate market's fairly well going up left, right, and center. And the reality is um, a emerging market is probably performing different to a monopoly-based market right now. A monopoly-based market is performing different, again, to a a competitive marketplace and a competitive market is again doing different to an oligopoly market or a NIMBY market, not in my backyard. I won't even use the word oligopoly. I can't even say it. Um, so we've just got to understand like if a, if a area which is NIMBY, it has limited supply in its neighborhoods and it becomes a discretionary wealth area. Now, the NIMBY suburb I always, you know, reference as a, as a good example is Balimba, Balimba in Brisbane. It's a really nice little sort of suburb. It's kind of like, I don't know, like if you're from Sydney listening, it's kind of like a Balmain. If you're from, I don't know, Melbourne listening, it's kind of like a Williamstown maybe. Um, It's just a tightly held, no supply. Um, If there's a little bit of new stock down there, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not common. Uh, the height limits for NIMBY suburbs are generally b- below the tree line. So you don't get three, four, five-story buildings. You don't get 10-story buildings. Um, so the market is an oligopoly. It is like Coles and Woolworths. There's just less stock in those neighborhoods. And again, um, you know, maybe the housing market in those neighborhoods has bolted. Not always, uh, not always, depending on your budget. Certainly in Brisbane, there is still opportunity to spend a million bucks and buy something absolutely incredible in some of the Brisbane-based NIMBYA suburbs, which are oligopolies. So you control what's going to happen. Again, when it comes to macro reporting for this stuff, whoever talks about an oligopoly market? No one. Only me, because I've been doing this for now my third decade and uh, I feel like understanding real estate from a behavioral point of view is just so much easier than going, oh, you know, here's an index on growth. Here's the, here's the report. Oh, my God, I read the financial review. There's going to be 3,000 apartments in Sydney. Well, what does that mean? Like that's, that's got nothing to do with the NIMBYs, right? NIMBYs ain't got one of those 3,000 apartments. That's that's the reality of it. So again, you just got to understand what it means. Now, there is no right or wrong, by the way. I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. I personally think if you're doing the five properties, five city strategy, you should buy one rare earth deal in a monopoly-based marketplace. Your second deal, do a gentrification property. Go for some transformation. If it's your third deal and there's no particular order, do yourself an oligopoly marketplace. Fourth deal, uh, grab you know yourself a competition marketplace property. And the final one, which again I think is is really cool when it comes to understanding locations is the idea of aspirational real estate, aspirational marketplaces. Now, 
Aspirational marketplaces, again, are just marketplaces that people want to live in, they don't need to live in, so they're not necessarily part of the grand bazaar of competition. They are basically marketplaces which people aspire to be part of. And as such, uh, when real estate becomes available there, there's usually someone with a little bit extra money to buy that real estate and fundamentally pay more for it. Now, every single year, a suburb has a conversion of how many properties are put on the marketplace. Some suburbs, you know, a small percentage of stock will come to market. And as such, when it does come to market, again, there is, if it is aspirational, we've got a layer of people who want to, again, climb into that platform. Now, real estate, again, is designed around growth and growth generally comes from two sections. It can come from scarcity or it can come from what the cost of money is. And right now, we are seeing, obviously, the cost of money drive growth, but scarcity is really much more of a long-term principle of capital growth in the marketplace. So aspirational marketplaces are definitely very scarce marketplaces. I tend to teach them that there are five belts that make up aspirational real estate. And those belts are the sand belt. Okay, so a sand belt is fundamentally a neighborhood which is driven by the beach or the lake or, you know, the harbor. It's basically driven by the idea that culturally in Australia, people love living near waterways. So waterways are an aspiration to people. You ask anyone in society, would you like to live near a waterway um, and be able to use that waterway, would that be an aspirational thing for you? They would go, yes, that would be great. I hate living where I live. I would love to aspire to live there. Okay, great. Now we realize that inside economics, there are people with more money who will pay more for that ability to take that asset out, aspiration. So the sandbelt's a big driver of aspiration. Um, The next one is the green belt. Yes, urban forests, areas which are green. We often refer to the the tree change of people escaping the city for an alpaca and a hobby farm. But actually also inside the city, people want to remain city slickers, but also pick up those areas or live near those areas where there is really good green space or really good cool little urban forest to go for a walk or a run or a mountain bike, things like that. And as such, they are a draw card, again, for aspiration. And as such, people will pay more to be part of that dynamic aspirational market inside the real estate marketplaces. Uh, The next one is the school belt. Obviously, sending your two dysfunctional kids to private schools is expensive. You might have Gopnik kids. Uh, You might have one really good kid that you know if you spend $50,000 per annum on him, you're going to get a result. You're going to get a return on your investment. That kid's going to win the Nobel Peace Prize. 
Then you've got the other kid who's a gopnik who's probably getting stoned, stealing things, and you're like, why am I spending this 50 grand on this gopnik kid who steals and smokes weed? Well, the answer to that, if you do not want to spend uh, the horrendous amount of money for private school fees, you can buy real estate in a suburb where the local high school is highly ranked when it comes to its uh, its educational score. And as such, those areas become school belts. School belts become aspirational areas for people to own real estate in because the families and people that have children aspire to be part of that community and their aspiration is driven through the opportunity to be exclusively allocated to that school zone precinct, school belts. Uh, I love finding real estate in school belts. And, you know, quite often they can be a little bit expensive. Quite often, um, you know, you've got to look at potentially things like townhouses or villas or, um, you know, just to get into those marketplaces. But again, they get this kind of uplift because people are paying for the big five-bedroom house with a pool a gazillion dollars. And there is an uh, uh, influence in those suburbs pushing values. And obviously, you know, I love suburbs where there is a diversity of real estate because the dress circle real estate jumps up in value. And then all of a sudden you've got this kind of maneuvers happening at a niche level inside of real estate marketplaces. When some suburbs are, again, just realistically all the same, um, you know, where is the right side of the road? I don't know. I don't know where the right side of the road is. But in Again, aspirational suburbs, it's easy to understand because that suburb has fundamentally probably been trading 150 years already where the good bits are, where the bad bits are. Humans have already created the desire line for property investors to follow. Again, competition markets, different to NIMBY markets. NIMBY markets are different to aspirational markets. Aspirational markets are different to oligopolies, and oligopolies, which I can never say, but different to monopolies. Uh, so there's two other belts. Um, I know the show's getting long, so I'll wind it up soon. The other belt inside the aspiration marketplace is what I call a cultural belt. Cultural belt is just fundamentally that one singular culture dominates a suburb at an affluent level, and as such, more people of that same culture want to live in that suburb and it drives a aspiration for those people of that culture to want that in particular that suburb now a great example in melbourne is box hill in sydney chatswood if you're a wealthy um, person from the australian chinese background aspirationally speaking you want to live for the most part, and I'm generalizing, but aspirationally speaking, you probably want to live in Chatswood in Sydney. The reason you want to do that is you feel safe around your culture. You get to be part of the Chinese-Australian uh, community. You get to 
um, live both the Australian lifestyle and a bit of lifestyle from your heritage, which is cool, right? Um, everyone in Australia loves the idea of multiculturalism and community and these aspirational pockets absolutely have performed. In fact, uh, aspirational cultural belts have been one of the highest performing places to own real estate really when measured across the last 20 years. Look at the capital growth of Box Hill. Look at the capital growth of Chatswood. Um, it has been absolutely incredible. And again, some of those aspirational markets now have passed their point where it's a little hard for property investors to play in. So if we can go and find a new aspirational marketplace from a cultural point of view, we can absolutely crack the code of real estate wealth, which is um, awesome. And the final place which I talk about a lot is driven around uh, knowledge. Um, so fundamentally, the idea that certain precincts attract smarter people and as such, more people who are smart aspire to live in them. And there's some great research out on smarter suburbs performing really, really well when it comes to this aspiration of people wanting to live in those neighborhoods to culturally be around this kind of idea of, of smart neighborhoods. And, you know, a good example of that can often be suburbs which are linked to medical or education precincts. They can be great areas for capital growth. You know, Carlton in Melbourne sp springs to mind. What a, what a, awesome suburb that suburb actually is and again um, education and medical uh, smart suburbs where there's fundamentally more degrees in the suburb they are areas from an aspirational point of view that you end up seeing people wanting to be part of that culture and it is uh, an interesting dynamic when it comes to you know, narrowing the focus on where to invest from a location strategy point of view. Remember, I like to teach there are five locations to choose real estate in, and it's not about vacant land. It's not about established housing. It's not about the apartment market. It's about location, location, location. From a macro level, we have five places where we can choose real estate. Competition marketplaces can be great if you find the ripple effect. And for me, I love looking for the ripple in competition marketplaces. Something I'm actually very, very good at is going, you know what? That is a place which is just evolving and the ripple's going to hit it. And it is actually going to leave the competition marketplace and become something much better into the future. There's absolutely nothing wrong with buying in a competition marketplace. You've just got to understand what the purpose behind the acquisition is and whether that competition marketplace can actually grow in value and start to stand out from the crowd. A lot of real estate was once a competition marketplace. Don't forget that. Generally, the springboard for a transformation of neighborhood starts at a competition level. Monopoly marketplaces, again, these built out, tightly held areas which there is really nowhere to go are just fantastic areas. I grew up in a competition marketplace. I've probably got more experience than anyone when it comes to, sorry, I grew up in a monopoly marketplace. I've probably got more experience than anyone when it comes to the monopoly effect of real estate. I saw it firsthand from literally when I was Chernobyl boy. 
the amount of money that it generates for wealthy people, incredible. The, the acceleration of growth, amazing. Merging marketplaces, I'm a big believer in it. And, you know, a big part of that is just the price you can buy and look at a suburb as a rough, ugly duckling and go, well, you know what? I'm prepared to look at this investment over the longer term, watch it absolutely transform. Remember, oligopoly markets and NIMBY markets are basically less vendors. As such, you know, they've got a different proposition for people to buy in. Again, you might have to take out another NIMBY to own that real estate. Um, that just means you're going to be an oligarch owning the real estate because you're now a NIMBY, which basically you'll probably end up going, we don't want any more development in our backyard. And of course, aspirational real estate driven by the belts, the school belt, the green belt, the sand belt, the cultural belt, and the smart belt, really what I help people understand. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. I hope you've enjoyed the show and I will catch you next time on another fun-filled education series around real estate. Let's crack those codes. See you later, folks. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.